let's turn together now to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, Genesis 18, we'll look at verses 16 through 32 uh, this morning, or sorry, 33 uh, this morning, the end of the chapter. Uh, last week we, we started this, this chapter, it's, it's where, uh, where, where God uh, comes to Abraham with, with two of his, his servants along with him, presumably angels, uh, and, and has a conversation with him, and, and last week we we heard the the promise of a, a son uh, once again reiterated this time to to Sarah, and then after after that conversation, this is uh, this is what happened next. It takes things take a bit of a a, a turn, perhaps even an unexpected turn. Uh, but Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16, uh, and reading through verse 33 at the end of the chapter, and this is God's word. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. When Abraham drew near and said, Will you, intend, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it. If I find 30 there, he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forevermore. Uh, there's a, an old hymn that, that we've never sung here, and it, it doesn't often get sung in our tradition because uh, it's, it's developed a little bit of a, a reputation in, in the revivalistic movement, which, which is probably a bit unfair. Uh, we're still not going to sing it today, but, but the hymn is, uh, Just As I Am. Uh, but I want us to listen just to the, the first two lines uh, of that hymn. It says, Just As I Am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. 
there's a, a beauty in, in the simplicity of that. There's, there's actually got the gospel in, in those words. We have no case to make before God. And we can only come before him by laying hold of, of the blood of Christ Jesus shed for us. We have no case to be made. Uh, there's not enough goodness in us. There, there's nothing that we could, we could present to the Lord uh, as, as worthy of his acceptance except for the blood of Christ Jesus. Now imagine if, if this hymn were rewritten for the, the modern world and the, the modern church today. The, the words would probably be something more along the lines of, just as I am, God accepts me and affirms me. And you would just stop there, wouldn't you? There's no need for the blood of Christ Jesus. The clear point of our, our passage this morning is that God not simply doesn't but cannot accept us just as we are. He's the God of, of righteousness. And the God of righteousness must be a God of justice. And what, that, what that means is that uh, a God who is righteous and just uh, is a God who has to judge, doesn't he? Especially those who are not right before him. Now this week and, and next are some of the more difficult bits of Abraham's life at least for us, I, I think, to, to take hold of. They, they tend to create a lot of questions, and I'm going to try to anticipate some of those questions uh, as we go along. But, but if I don't answer your question, come and ask me during tea and coffee later. I'm happy to have uh, a further conversation. But this morning I want us to see just three points. Uh, first of all, we see that God is a God of true justice. Secondly, we see that God is a God who ministers to and comforts his people. And third, we see that God is a God who intervenes. For sinners. So first let's see that God is a God of true justice. Right out of the gate, uh, we need to remind ourselves that when, when God presents himself to us in scripture, it's, it's in order for us to, to understand him better uh, according to uh, the limits of our, our human minds. What I, what I mean by that is that, that, that God is, is revealing something to us about his character, but we, we can never fully grasp uh, the, the totality of who he is. Or the fullness of that character. We can't understand him, the, the fullness of his power, the, the fullness of his, his sovereign might. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's, he's all these things that we are not. And so when he, when he speaks to us, he, he comes down to our level and tries to, to reveal himself in a way that, that we can begin to, to just grasp and comprehend. And I say that up front because actually... Uh, bearing this in mind answers a lot of the questions about the way God speaks uh, with Abraham and a lot of the questions that come up in our minds along the way. For example, in verses 16 and 17, at the very start, when God looks towards Sodom, he, he asks himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? So in this, in this instance, on the one hand, it appears that, that what God is about to do is, is already decided, isn't it? His judgment upon Sodom is irrevocable at this stage. But why then does it appear that there's some waffle later on? Well, the answer is because he, he wants to teach Abraham, and by extension you and I, something about, about his character and who he is. That's actually what verse 19 means when God says to Abraham, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God, God speaks to Abraham here 
because he has appointed him to be the, the father of many nations. And we've, we've heard that in previous weeks. And part of that calling is to, to be able to, to teach his children and his grandchildren, his ancestors, uh, and the entirety of his household, the, the nature and character of God and how they're to pursue what is, what is righteous and holy in the sight of God. And this is, in fact, the entire point of this episode in, in Abraham's life. What does God teach Abraham and us? That He teaches us that he is a, a God of justice and that he is therefore a God who must judge evil. And that's not a fashionable thing for us, the church to say anymore, is it? And we'd, we'd much rather sing, just as I am, God accepts me. But he's the God that we must come before with, without one plea other than his mercy and grace to us in Christ Jesus. Just as Abraham could converse with him only because of the grace of God to him and, and the covenant promises made, so we can only approach God because he is the covenant-keeping God. He's the promise-keeping God. He's the God who purchases us through his Son. This is probably the point where I should bring up what, what was happening in Sodom. Uh, Sodom, of course, is a, a city. We've, we've uh, heard of it previously. It's where, where Lot uh, kind of continuously moved closer and closer to. So uh, Abraham's nephew uh, is there in Sodom. Uh, Abraham at one point saved Sodom uh, and its king uh, during a, a great battle uh, that he helped to, to settle. But the judgment of God against Sodom is, is uh, often attributed to their homosexual practice. Uh, many would, would like to make uh, the, the judgment against Sodom a, a one-issue judgment. But I want to suggest to us that it's actually a bit more nuanced than that, although I don't think it makes, makes things much better. First, on the issue of homosexuality, that was, that was certainly happening in the city. And we'll, we'll see that uh, next week uh, a little bit. It, it was a, an accepted practice in that place. But I think it's safe to say that where there were, were probably almost certainly other wicked practices taking place in that city. Some of them probably uh, heterosexual as well. But the second thing that we need to understand is the way that Scripture presents homosexuality. That it tends to, to crop up as an acceptable practice in cultures and societies where, where God has been all but rejected. This is what, this is what Paul teaches and indicates in Romans chapter 1 uh, in the New Testament. Here, here's a bit of what he says, beginning in, in Romans 1 verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So in other words, that, that the light of nature, that, that, that the world that we inhabit, is sufficient to, to point us to God. Uh, these are people who, who could have sought out the Lord God himself, but rather they, they chose to, to ignore him and reject him. And ultimately, when you ignore and reject the one who created you, the only one who can really define your existence and, and why you're here, then it, it leads to not to, to greater wisdom, but to foolishness. 
that's often disguised as or, or, or viewed as, as being wise, claiming to be wise, verse 22 of Romans 1, they became fools. And then a little further down, this is, this is the result. He says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now those are, those are strong words, aren't they? And I'm going to get us back to our passage here in a minute. But what I, what I want to uh, give you all uh, this morning, and the point that I simply want to make, is that homosexuality, whether it was in Sodom, or whether it's in our, our present day, was simply an, an outward manifestation of a much deeper heart issue. When a society or a city like Sodom accepts these kinds of acts, that means that there's, there's already a lot of other sins going on. There's already been a, a rejection of, of the Lord God and, and who he created us to be and how he created us to live before him. And in that, that place and that people, uh, places like that and people like that ought to be warned that the, the one true God that they've rejected is patient, but he is also just. We actually see that careful patience and, and justice here in our passage this morning. Let me point out just just uh, uh, two ways in these first few verses that we that we see that that patience and that that justice. Notice the the reason why God is taking an interest in Sodom. He doesn't he doesn't name any specific sins, does he? He he doesn't say it was because of their homosexuality uh, or even heterosexual sins or, or or anything else like that. But rather, look at verse twenty. Then the Lord God. Then the Lord said. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. Why is, he, why is he going down to judge them? Why is he taking interest in them? Because the outcry against them was, was so great. What was this outcry? It was, it was a cry for justice against those who, who had committed terrible injustices. And the way we ought to, to understand injustice here is, is not simply harming the weak or, or taking advantage of uh, the, the powerful, taking advantage of, of the less powerful, although that's certainly part of it. But it was a, a grave injustice to not honor the Lord God and to live in a way that dishonors him and, and, and who he created us to be. That is, in fact, the, the, the root of all injustice, isn't it? When we reject the Lord God, then then we're going to take advantage of others and co commit these, these other things that we define as injustices. It's, it's the very heart of sin. That if, if allowed to take root, will lead to our destruction. The injustice of Sodom is, is a broad injustice that encapsulates all the, the wickedness that, that you could imagine. And probably a great deal more than you, than you, that, that you probably couldn't. And so the cry against Sodom is not a cry that, that a just and righteous God can ignore. And we actually should be thankful for that, shouldn't we? That God is not going to ignore forever the injustices of our world. I think when you look at our world today, there's, there's almost a, a constant outcry, isn't there, against injustice 
and our world gets very messy uh, very quickly, doesn't it? There's probably times where you're you're not sure which which uh, injustice you should be upset about because there's there's so many, and sometimes it seems like both sides uh, seem wrong. It's like in in Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings, the 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 Ents, these ancient wise tree creatures who are asked, which side are you on? And they say, sides, I'm not on, on either side because no one's fully on my side. That's, that's how we, sh- we actually should feel as Christians in the world when we see uh, so much injustice upon injustice. But there's good news that we see here in our passage, and that is that God cannot tolerate any injustice, and he will not tolerate it forever. That there's one person who can, who can sort it all out, and it's certainly not you and I. It's absolutely not our, our political leaders. It's the Lord God Almighty. And yet, even in his judgment, God is patient and fair, isn't he? Look at, this is the second thing we, we learn about God in this point. Look at verse 21. He says, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Again, this is where God brings himself down to our level and, and underlines his, his patience as, as well as the fact that, that, that we can have confidence in his justice, that he is a, an, an incredibly fair God. He's a God who, who knows absolutely everything. We know him to, to be infinite and to be absolutely everywhere. He's all-knowing. But he still says that he, he comes down, he, he enters in to the, the dark places and the wicked places of our world to see for himself before passing final judgment. It wasn't necessary, at least not, not if you understand God rightly, but he, he does it as a, in order to, to help us understand the nature of his justice and character. It's not... It's not justice that he, he's not the, the often caricatured God who's sitting there uh, just waiting to, to, to uh, judge those who've, who make the slightest error. But he takes his justice very seriously and he executes it very carefully. And he does not pass judgment without knowing fully the reason for it. You see, this is the, the character of our great God. He's not rash in his judgments, but he's slow to anger. And he's abounding in, in steadfast love. And we see that slow uh, to anger in, in, in his patience and willingness to, to gather all of the evidence from even a place with the reputation of Sodom. Now we see his steadfast love for his people in our, our second point this morning. Our second point is God is a God who ministers to and comforts his people. Um, God has a conversation with Abraham, doesn't he? And that, in that, that conversation with Abraham is, is the convergence of, of justice and grace. If God's uh, justice makes you uncomfortable, then, then you're actually in good company this morning. Because Abraham and his, his plea before God reflects his own discomfort in, his, uh, in, in God's justice and judgment. And God seems actually to, to anticipate this, this discomfort, doesn't he? And his decision to even bring up with Abraham what he's about to do in Sodom. God, again, does it to, to teach Abraham 
but he also does it to, to minister to and, and to, to comfort Abraham. He invites Abraham to, to know and understand the mind of God himself and to understand the depths of, of his righteousness, but also he invites him to, to plumb the depths of his, his grace and mercy. God does it because he refers to Abraham as, as his friend. And he treats Abraham as one with whom he shares intimacy. And Abraham seems to recognize this, doesn't he? So he, he begins to plumb the depths of God's patience and grace. First God says he, he, won't, uh, he won't destroy the city if he can find 50 righteous people there. Uh, but what we see next is, is really what, what at its core is a, an, an ancient Near Eastern bargaining ritual. This is, this is how uh, a negotiation would go in, in Abraham's culture and, and, and time period. Abraham's extremely humble, but he keeps haggling to get the best deal, doesn't he? He gets God all the way down to ten. If there are ten righteous people found in the city, then God will not destroy it. Now the natural question some of you might be thinking is, but why ten? Why not five? Or even even one? Why does Abraham stop at ten? And, and the best answer I could come up with is, is that because ten is, has long been a, a number of completion. A, a, it, it's a, a symbolic number. It was a number where, where the righteous of the city uh, could no longer claim that they were not part of the, the collected wickedness of that place. That they were that they were tolerating things that, that should not have been tolerated. And it's hard to say exactly, but in a in a city, though, we should we should say that's that's a pretty low threshold, isn't it? Even in an ancient city that was would have been much smaller and less populated than our own, ten righteous people is a very low bar to reach. I think it's hard to to claim that God is is wrong to punish a place of of deep rooted wickedness against Him when He's shown a willingness to to spare the place with so few righteous. Again, though, God knew how many righteous were there already, didn't he? He knew what the, the result of, of the investigation would be. But he's, he's teaching Abraham something about his willingness to show mercy. But most of all, we see that, that God shows mercy to those he's called to himself. That mercy started with, with uh, mercy from his, his just judgment against Abraham himself. But now we see that, that mercy and grace grow as he, as he invites Abraham to, to question and interact with him. God doesn't, God doesn't need, God doesn't, doesn't hide from Abraham what he's about to do, does he? There's no uh, shame in, in God's judgment. There's no non-disclosure agreement. God isn't concerned with how it's going to look to do what is right and just but he bears with Abraham's weakness and fears and concerns, not only, not only for, for uh, the sake of his nephew Lot, but also his concern for this, this city of, of wicked people that he's known and interacted with. God is, God is gracious and patient and ministers to Abraham as he reveals his justice and wrath to him. But what Abraham does here is, is actually quite remarkable, and I want, I want to look at that a bit more in our third and final point this morning that God is a God who intervenes for sinners. Uh, I think Abraham's response is, is quite interesting, isn't it? He hears of God's intention to, to pass judgment on Sodom. He's going to go down and see for himself. 
And Abraham knows what Sodom is like. Uh, Abraham didn't really want to have anything to do with Sodom himself. He even refused to accept any gifts from the, the king of Sodom after he freed uh, the king in battle. Again, because Abraham didn't want a close affiliation with, with that city. He knew of the wickedness there. He knew of the reputation. Yet here we have Abraham pleading for the people of Sodom. Now, the first thing I think that, that should strike us uh, by this is, is that uh, it tends to be the opposite of how we react to God's judgment. At least many of us. How many of us would pray for God to show mercy to the people around us that we see as wicked? I suspect not many of us do. In fact, I think if, if you're, you're perhaps like me, you probably get angry at, at, at some people and start, start putting people into Sodom and, and praying for judgment. You know, some of us have a, a letter-rip-lord view of things, don't we? But Abraham shows us here what it is to, to intercede and petition God for unbelievers, to pray for the salvation of those who, who have rejected him and are far from him. He shows us what it is to, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Someone told us we should do that. I'm trying to remember who. Yeah, it was Jesus, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it's a beautiful and it's, it's incredibly significant that the way that, that Abraham intercedes for these, for these people, we, we hear in, in his humble questioning of God the, that the, the seeds of, of God's grace and mercy to Abraham have taken root in his heart and they've, they've grown to, to bearing fruit and a longing to see righteousness spread. It begs the question of what, what fruit of the seeds of God's grace and mercy are you seeing in your own life? Do you have the seeds of, of moral clarity which says, let her rip, Lord, because you think you're, you're better than, than those around you? You think you're clean? Or do you have the seeds of, of grace and mercy that says, if it weren't for the grace of God, I would, I would be just like those people. Have mercy, Lord, upon the righteous and call the wicked to take hold of your mercy in Christ. You see, Abraham could look at Sodom and he could see himself there if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God and the covenant promises made to him. Can you place yourself in Sodom? Could you see yourself there if it weren't for the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to you? Do you see yourself as righteous before God? If so, then why? Do you think it's because you've lived a better life than others? Or is it because you are wholeheartedly and utterly dependent upon the mercy of the Lord God poured out upon you in Christ Jesus, his Son? If your answer is the latter, then how you, how you view the unjust and the wicked of our world will be very different from the former, the ones who think they're just better people. But there's something deeper going on in this conversation that I, I think we, we uniquely see in Abraham. We see in him the, the heart of God towards wicked and sinful people. In this moment in Abraham's life, he is the, the only thing standing between God's wrath and the unrighteous people of Sodom. Because he's the, the one who's, been, who's, who's had the covenant promises of God set upon him. He has a unique relationship to God where, where in many ways he, 
he represents before God uh, the nations that God has promised to, to bring forth from him. And so we, it ends up with one of the most remarkable intercessions in all of Scripture. I think this is perhaps the first time that we, we hear a man of God, one who's been counted as righteous in the sight of God, standing between God and the wicked and pleading for some of them to be counted as righteous as he was. And what we should see in here in this intercession is, is actually the limited ability of Abraham to stand in the gap between justice and wickedness. God, out of his sovereign grace, heard Abraham, but his wrath could not be put off by him, as we'll see uh, in the weeks ahead. The promises of the old covenant made to Abraham were insufficient to bring righteousness to a place like Sodom. And the good news for us, though, this morning is, is that we have one who, who is superior to Abraham to stand in the gap between God's justice and our wickedness and sinfulness. We have one who can put off God's wrath from us. We have one who is righteous in his own right because he was God's own son. You see, Christ Jesus is for us in the same way that, that Abraham was, was for the people of Sodom and interceded for them. But what Abraham could only do weekly for Sodom, Christ can do for you and I fully and truly. He's the one who has the right to plea for the righteous. But he's the one who takes sinners like Abraham and like you and I and like the people of Sodom and can make them righteous in the eyes of God. So that when he, he pleads for us, his pleas are, are heard and his righteousness merited to you and me. He could do that because he could meet the requirements of God's justice at the cross. And he can, by his blood, count us as righteous before God the Father. But the calling of, of you and I is to take hold of, his, of his, his righteousness and grace by faith. You have to hand your entire self over to him and, and leave behind the old ways of Sodom. You see, this is, this is who God is. We see the character of God so clearly displayed here, don't we? He's a God who must be just, and yet he tenderly ministers to his people. And he intervenes and intercedes for sinners like you and I through Christ Jesus our Savior. And he's the God who calls you and I to, with Abraham, to, to walk with him, to speak to him, to know him, and ultimately to trust that he will bring righteousness and justice to this his world, not according to, to our own plans or desires, but according to his own glory alone. Let us pray.